We're in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. I'm sorry, 1 through 6. Do you want me to stand? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Again, if you do not have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. And I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. We need God's word today. If you are just joining us online or just joining us in person, again, my name is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the elders here at Bayless. And it is a privilege to be able to unpack God's word to you today. Recognize this is not quite like any other social gathering, is it? What we're doing here is we want to hear from what God has to say every week. We walk through another passage of scripture. We're now, we've been working for some time through a book of the Bible. Our, our, our job is to understand what God intended, not the meaning that we want to read into it. Uh, we want to hear what God has to say to us, even if it might disagree, because we know that even as he disagrees with us, it's on the way to joy. And so I hope you will keep your Bibles open. And again, this uh, week, uh, I just want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's coming up. I know that this year feels like we don't have permission to celebrate Thanksgiving, though, right? I mean, we're getting, we're getting notices everywhere to hold off on gatherings, and too, I, I wanna, we want to respect the national guidelines. Nonetheless, Thanksgiving is a very Christian holiday. It's the best. In fact, I, I, part of why I'm such a stickler about not listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving is because Thanksgiving's awesome. I don't want to di- distract from it. The life of a, of a Christian is a thankful life, and God has done so much in our lives to be thankful for. In fact, as uh, I'm perhaps thankful today um, more than many other Sundays um, because I'm aware of what took place this last Sunday. You know, this last Sunday, after two years of prayer and of studying God's word and with the members' unanimous approval, I had the privilege of ordaining Larry Babb and John Christensen to serve as self-supported pastor elders here at our church. And that was a huge praise. I mean, can we give God a hand for that? That's, that's a big deal. So here's, here's why this is such a big deal. So first, Larry and John have been trusted leaders and shepherds here for quite some time. You may have not gotten a chance to meet them. I would encourage you to do so. They're, uh, Larry's uh, back here at the, at the uh, exit here, and John's back in our sound booth. But they've been very trusted amongst many of the members who've been here for some time. They've been here longer than I've been here for certain. Um, and in fact, I think I was in junior high when they first started here. Uh, not to make you guys feel old. Uh, but, the, uh, but now you have freed them up. In fact, you've commissioned them to do what they've been doing for a long time. To be shepherds for you. And to do that beside me for years to come as God really has intended by his grace 
We say it often here, this is not a uh, Evan-led church. It's not a Larry-led or John-led church. This is a Jesus-led church. That's what the Christian church is meant to be. And only Jesus is glorious enough to put in the spotlight and sufficient enough for us to latch our hopes to him. And my prayer is that our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, will raise up even more shepherds in the years to come to lead you as he would. The work, in many ways, at Bayless is just beginning, friends. But make no mistake, God is at work and deserves glory for it. But we're going to be in uh, Mark's gospel today, as we've been for the last several months. Um, but this is our last week in Mark's gospel um, for, for a while, um, as we enter into an uh, Advent series, a season of preparation for Christmas, which we're going to be calling Great News of Great Joy, Good News of Great Joy, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But this book, as a reminder, or for those who have first time you're opening it today, is a book that's all about Jesus. But it's not just about his work, his, who teach, his teaching, his unique nat- nature. This book is about our response to Jesus. And so there's perhaps no more fitting passage to conclude our study of Mark, at least for the next several months, uh, than this one. Whether you consider yourself religious or not, even if you consider yourself quite close to Jesus, John Mark and God want to see your response change toward Jesus. That's the effect that this passage should have on us. It shouldn't leave any of us unaffected. It doesn't matter how long you've been studying these things or how long you've been in the church. God wants to see your response change to Jesus. Now, spoiler alert, in this book, the response that Jesus wants us to have is faith, a life of faith, lived in faith. And this passage, like last week, is all about faith, and even more so about a particular enemy of faith, a rather deceptive enemy we might not think about of faith, familiarity. You know, I find that actually familiarity, being familiar with Jesus, can at times be more dangerous than outright skepticism. Sometimes those who are the farthest, I find, from Jesus are actually those who are the most familiar with him. We're going to look at this passage and its claim about that. The title of my sermon today is Too Familiar to Follow. And together we're going to walk verse by verse through this passage looking at some of the reasons familiarity can be so ruinous to the Christian life, to the life of faith, starting with the first. You ready? Number one, familiarity is decreasingly impressed with Jesus. Familiarity is decreasingly impressed with Jesus. Now with Thanksgiving, again, just around the corner, many of us are thinking of home. Do you remember Thanksgivings that you celebrated? Maybe your family didn't. Maybe it's a source of pain, as I know many holidays can be. But my students that I teach, many of them are getting ready to head home for Thanksgiving. I have a student who's about to board a 16-hour flight back to Poland. It's quite, wor- quite a lot of work to get back home. Even this afternoon, our family is headed to Wisconsin to be with Grace's family for Thanksgiving, um, to her childhood home and still others of us. We found out, found out that we won't be going home for Thanksgiving as we expected, given the rising numbers of coronavirus cases around the country. And now, six chapters into Mark's gospel, we find Jesus coming home. 
Though it's not exactly the reunion you might expect. I imagine Jesus' disciples might actually have been a little hesitant before Jesus said, we're going back to Nazareth. Imagine they were hesitant to go back to the old homestead because last time that Jesus saw his family, it, it didn't exactly go very well. Mark's already told us that Jesus' brothers at one point sought him out because they thought their brother was going crazy. They thought, in many ways, his newfound popularity, they figured, had finally gone to his head and it was time to get him back home where he could be corrected And how did Jesus respond when they sought him out among the crowds? He didn't even go out to them. He functionally gave them a spiritual Heisman, a stiff arm, and said, well, you're not really my true family anyway. Woof. You ever shown up for dinner knowing things are going to get pretty tense pretty fast? You know, I'm not sure whether whether the disciples would have rather gone home with Jesus or stuck with the madmen in the graveyard. We read about a chapter earlier. Still, they follow Jesus back to Nazareth where Jesus is said to, have be- to begin teaching once again. Now, something we should know about Nazareth, the place that Jesus was raised, he was born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth, the place where Jesus grew up, it, it was really an unimpressive town. It's hard for us to get much details at all about Nazareth prior to Jesus, even during his time. It wasn't a city of much influence. It wasn't an urban center. This was a small, rural, obscure town in the hill country of Galilee, 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And the total population of Nazareth was something probably around 500 at the most, living in earthen homes cut out of the rocky hillside amongst what would have been a large population of Gentiles. I mean, anybody here known uh, that you, I mean, everybody grew up uh, in a small town. Anyone here grew up in a very small town? The kind of town where everybody knows everybody and has time, where you can't go to the grocery store without having three awkward conversations before you leave. You know, in a town like this, everyone would have known and remembered Jesus, and yet This isn't the carpenter's son that they remember. Stories about Jesus surely have made their way back to a small, even nothing town like this. And at least, it seems in part, the rumors they've heard about Jesus turn out to be something to them. On Sabbath, Jesus, in fact, leaves them all a bit shocked as he read and explained the scriptures in the Jewish synagogue there and they were left asking one another, where did this man get these things? I mean, this wisdom, this, this power. Where did, he, where did Jesus get these things? At first glance, it can seem, in fact, like Jesus has just hit a home run in his hometown. He's going to be cheerleaded as the hometown hero Just like in Capernaum, we're sure that the crowds, at least I would expect, would begin to grow as they have so naturally with Jesus. And it says, in fact, that they were astonished by Jesus in verse 2. But we find out that this astonishment, this amazement, was not so much positive as it was negative. It was less awe and wonder than looking for who was pulling the strings here. You know, I I remember going to Disneyland as a kid. 
And I remember just the wonder of it all, how it really captivated my imagination. I remember particularly there was a show called Phantasmic that I looked forward to every night. There would be uh, sword, there were sword fights and huge monsters and fairies flying over your heads. It was enough to make a kid's imagination just run wild. And I thought about going back to Disneyland for most of, I mean, pretty much every day as a kid since I went and uh, since I had first gone. And finally, when I was able to go back as a teenager, it just does, wasn't what I remembered it to be. In fact, I, you know, the rides, the shows, I mean, the magic was not just less magical. Instead of being caught up in the wonder of it all, I was looking for the wires, looking for the trap doors, looking for the lighting tricks, for the people behind the curtain. I even, you know, as a teenager, I, I took pride that I could see behind the facade. I wasn't going to be tricked again. This wasn't magic. There was, I could see the strings there. I wasn't a kid anymore. Um, I wasn't going to be conned. And uh, even as I think Jesus here may have impressed Nazareth initially, it doesn't take long before their excitement wanes and their cynicism begins to grow. For they be, for, it doesn't take long for them to begin looking past Jesus for a reason to explain him away. Friends, one of the marks of familiarity is that it is decreasingly impressed with Jesus. Maybe you're in this category. Actually, I, I know many Christians, we've had conversations in which the excitement you felt about Jesus and the church, about all this stuff, it's begun to well, the wear off, it's lost its new car smell. Maybe your relationship with God has turned out to be more difficult than you expected. Maybe more boring than you expected. Or at least different than you thought it might be. I find that when that kind of disappointment or dullness shows up in the Christian life, when it sets in, there's often two results. Sometimes... Some try to manipulate a sense of excitement. You know, I see this particularly with how Christians, including me, and how I've often grown up and served in churches where we can try and manipulate this kind of excitement in how we structure a worship service like this. We take all the drab, all the routine stuff out, and we infuse in those services more energy, more entertainment, more, uh, we, we shorten the time frames. We replace the gospel with great stories and good advice. And if Jesus and his gospel really aren't impressing us, we, we have a sense, then if it's not really doing it for us anymore, then maybe it's time to give something else the spotlight. I mean, we're not going to abandon it, but it maybe doesn't need to take center stage. It's as if the goal of the worship service was what I get out of it and not whether God was actually worshipped. Friends, we're in an overstimulated society. You know, with 10 good shows that we are working on right now, in fact, there's a streaming service that was released this year in which the episodes famously were only 10 minutes in length, so you never had to stand in a line in which you didn't have a TV show that you could watch. Or perhaps our attention spans are really that short where there's one, not even one moment, not one ounce of boredom, you know, where we uh, are unable now to wait in a doctor's office without scrolling TikTok. We are addicted to being entertained, afraid of being bored and feeling awkward. And I fear if we are not aware of this, 
if we're not belligerently fighting against it, if we're not seeing goodness in the awkwardness, in the boredom, in the strangeness of it all, we will use our churches to feed our addiction. Instead of seeing the church as an institution in which I am formed over time, taking in one healthy meal after another, even if it's full of a little bit more vegetables than I would have picked out for myself, instead of showing up to worship God, we can turn worship into yet another product to consume. Figuring if I didn't get much out of it, then it must be the server's fault and they're going to hear about it in my Yelp review. This is how we operate as a culture, isn't it? Instead of asking why we have become bored or cold or indifferent toward Jesus, we try to manufacture that sense of excitement, manufacture emotional highs, sometimes by pushing Jesus aside. God help us if I or any of our other elders, if any program, any initiative, anything else in this church replaces the gospel as the thing we are most passionate about. If we are impressed with something else more than we are passionate and impressed with Jesus Christ. But there is still a second way we can respond to our disappointments and our dullness, and that is for cynicism to set in. This really is the response of Nazareth. We become convinced all this is really fake anyways, and we begin to collect reasons why. We move from a posture of open-handed receptivity to crossed-armed disengagement. I mean, we say things like, even just subtly assuming, if you want me to take you seriously, God, then you're going to have to prove yourself. Show off. And then, every disappointment, every sign of hypocrisy, every unmet expectation, every awkward interaction serves as proof positive that this is just as fake as I thought it was in the first place. Or this just really isn't for me. Have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Familiarity breeds contempt. This is exactly what it refers to. Familiarity collects evidence against Jesus, against the church, and it gives us increasing permission to keep him at arm's length or finally free myself of his shackles. You know, I grew up in a Christian school. I went to a Christian youth group, was in a Christian Boy Scout troop, if you can believe it. I know I just lost a lot of credibility with some of you, some coolness points as if I had those in the first place. But I tell you how many, I can't tell you how many friends I have that are in this category who have now uh, deconverted from Christianity. Some of us might be in that place too. Only I find that most deconversion stories don't happen overnight with a single offense. They happen over time. Not as a person actually, at least commonly, weighs all the evidence objectively, but as a person continues to build a case around their dissatisfaction. To feed an inner narrative they are already convinced of, and that until that narrative uh, seems so foolproof or affirmed by enough people around me that I can finally come out on the right side of history and leave all of this behind. Instead of questioning our initial assumptions, we become historians looking for proof to back up our cynicism. Either way, whether it's trying to manipulate a sense of excitement or 
finding reasons to solidify my cynicism, familiarity is decreasingly impressed with Jesus. But number two, familiarity is increasingly offended by Jesus. Increasingly offended by Jesus. Now at this point, we need to start asking why Jesus' hometown was so skeptical toward him. Why does it seem like he's starting 50 yards back when it comes to the place where he grew up? Read with me verse 3, if you would. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? You see why I said that their amazement wasn't exactly positive? You can hear the skepticism here. It, in fact, it goes on and says they were offended by him. It tells it pretty explicitly. There are at least three reasons why, though, why D- Jesus didn't exactly stand out among his peers in Nazareth. First, it's that Jesus was a carpenter. Now, John Mark is the only gospel writer to tell us this explicitly. It seems from the other gospels that Jesus learned carpentry from Joseph, his adoptive father. If you'll remember, according to the Bible, he was born of a virgin. Mary had not slept with another man, um, and Joseph became, in a sense, his adoptive dad. Now, something else we need to know, though, about Joseph and Jesus working as carpenters, carpenters is that carpentry isn't probably as refined or as romantic as you might imagine. You know, we imagine Jesus carving little toys for children and, you know, maybe carving those wooden doors you walked in with as you come, came in or making somebody's dining room set. Jesus and Joseph were probably not making a commission this way. No, carpentry was actually a pretty blue-collar trade in manual labor, which was more like, was, was less like wood carving and more like construction work. In fact, Jesus and Joseph, they might have spent their life building a nearby city that was four miles away that was burned down when Jesus was just a child by the Romans, and then the Romans said, now rebuild it. And so Nazareth, many of the men there would have worked as construction workers rebuilding this this town as carpenters in many ways. You know, blue-collar like this, blue-collar work like this wasn't necessarily a uh, mark against Jesus, It's very common for a Jewish person to work in a trade like this. After all, most of the men in Nazareth had a trade like this. But it it definitely wasn't worth putting on your resume. You know, teachers, especially the really impressive ones, were trained under famous teachers or rabbis. They had been preparing for that vocation their entire lives. They had soft soft hands, not rough ones. They spent their days in study. They weren't tanned by the Middle Eastern sun. They weren't carpenters. Second, Jesus was Mary's son. You might say, well, yeah, no, duh. This may not stand out to us, but it would have been unusual for a Jewish man to be described this way. Usually, you were described by your relationship to your father. But Jesus here is referred to by his mother, Some think of this as a subtle way of referring to Jesus' virgin birth, but it's more likely that this represents a, a subtle dig at Jesus. Here's why. The Gospels tell us that one of the reasons that Joseph almost uh, broke off his engagement with Mary was because he, along with everyone else, was, uh, they assumed that Mary had gotten herself pregnant outside of marriage. 
outside of wedlock. This would have been really juicy gossip in Nazareth. And those of you who are from, are, are from small towns, uh, you know that a reputation like this, it sticks with you for a lifetime. It's likely many saw Jesus still as the illegitimate son of Mary, which was not exactly resume material either. Third, the rest of his family wasn't very impressive either. They were rather ordinary. Jesus, it seems, was the oldest of five brothers and at least two sisters. None of them were particularly standouts. In a society where status was bound up with where you came from, this was not a family that was going places, particularly a family that didn't even have Jesus' back. You know, we find out that, his, that only two of, that two of his brothers that we know of, uh, and, uh, Jude and, um, and James, uh, likely became Christians uh, after the resurrection, but may, remained opponents perhaps for most of his life. By all accounts, Jesus, in terms of his background, was unimpressive. I realize this might surprise some of us. You know, we picture Jesus as uh, maybe showing off his power all the time as a kid. I mean, I mean, I would. I mean, you can imagine, you know, Mom, uh, uh, Jude just broke his arm. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. Or Mary, you know, saying, you know, oh, Joseph, we just ran out of dates again. Hey, Jesus, you want to come to the pantry? You can imagine that. Jesus would have shown off his, we would imagine if we were Jesus, that he would have shown off his whole childhood, but it seems that Jesus, his power was hidden for his entire childhood. His upbringing was rather well ordinary. It reminds me of the prophet Isaiah and what he said about the coming Messiah. How we would recognize him is that he would be rather ordinary, the one set apart to rescue God's people. Verse 2 in chapter, uh, in Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no, and no beauty that we should desire him. You can imagine his neighbors whispering to one another, I mean, yes, I mean, he might seem like he's quite something. I mean, I could see how he might impress one of those city people in Capernaum. But we know him better, don't we? I mean, let's, let's face it. He works with his hands just like us. And his mother, isn't she, you know, the one who had the virgin birth? He doesn't exactly come from the right side of the tracks, does he? And so they find reasons to bolster their skepticism. Friends, we're, we're not so different from these people, though. You see, all of us, just like these neighbors aren't as objective as we imagine ourselves to be when it comes to God. We all have what you might call a worldview, if you will, some deeply embedded assumptions about who God is, about what expectations he has of us, and about the way that he works in the world, things that we take for granted that we did not arrive at after a period of serious study and weighing the options, things that we just assume. All of us have an inner grid by which we filter the world around us and structure our lives. It's how we operate. It's what it takes to be a human being, is to take certain things for granted. 
It's why you take certain people seriously and not others. It's why you watch certain news programs and not others, and I, you probably could tell me which ones those are. Why you spend your money the way you do. Why you date the people you do. It's why certain things seem true, good, and beautiful to you, and others do not. The reason Jesus' neighbors rejected Jesus is because they already had some deeply embedded assumptions about where true authority would come from, and what it would look like, what it would sound like. In a sense, they had already made up their minds about Jesus, and they had already made up that he couldn't be who he said he would be. They just needed some evidence to prove it. After all, to change their mind about him, well, that would change everything. And they weren't looking to have their lives rearranged. Think about the ridiculous lengths that we go to to preserve what is familiar? Anybody have, you know, that chair that everyone tells us to get rid of, but it's just so comfortable? It started to smell bad. Wives, you know, that pair of socks that your husband has that have more holes in them than you can count, that just need to be burned, if anything, but they're comfortable. And we don't like to change. We want things to stay predictable, We aren't looking to have our minds changed or our lives rearranged. After all, our sense of stability, meaning, and progress in the world is bound up with these assumptions. And changing these assumptions might turn our world upside down, leave us on unstable footing, uncertain how to make sense of the world anymore. It's easier then to keep our assumptions intact, particularly about God, than to question him. Question them, I'm sorry to question those assumptions. In fact, when the evidence does not seem to match our assumptions, instead of questioning our assumptions, instead of rearranging our assumptions, it's easier to explain away that evidence or dismiss it entirely. But I have to tell you, it's only a matter of time, whether you consider yourself religious or not, before Jesus will disagree with your assumptions. It's only a matter of time before we, too, will take offense at Jesus. I don't mean just that he will disagree with our views of sexual ethics or about the nature of tolerance or the way we use our money, although he certainly will. No, Jesus will fundamentally offend our understanding of him. He will not allow us to simply treat him as an inspiring hero or a wise teacher or a faithful friend or some back pocket protection from hell. His claim to be Savior and Lord and his insistence that he be treated as Savior and Lord will require all of us to fundamentally reorder our lives and it's no wonder that this will offend us. After all, who is looking to have their life disruptive? Think of the world before Copernicus and Galileo. So if you don't remember science class, that's okay. But the world in which they lived assumed that, of course, the earth was the center of the universe. The hinge around which everything orbited, everything turned. But then these astronomers, Copernicus and Galileo, began to suggest that the sun, not the earth, was the center and that everything orbited around it. How well was that received? After all, this is a pretty major, unpopular notion 
Well, that notion was dismissed as heresy, and Galileo almost faced torture and death because of it. After all, if you change the center of your universe, what else might change with it? When it comes to Jesus, we really only have two options. Number one, we can continue to protect our basic assumptions, explaining around Jesus, justifying our understanding of our lives and the world we operate in, continuing to put ourselves at the center of our universe, insisting that everything, including Jesus, orbit around us, or we can change what we assume about Jesus. We can submit to Jesus as king, as the real center of our universe, and allow everything, including me, to orbit around him. You know, I fear many religious people are actually great at the first option, at continuing their basic assumptions. Just familiar enough with Jesus to not take him seriously. To applaud what Jesus says about sex, but not about the poor. To celebrate what he says about justice, but not what he says about holiness. Familiar people find reasons to keep Jesus in a church building, but not in the workplace, in the classroom, definitely not the couch or the bedroom. Familiar people say things like, maybe I can hold on to this just a a bit longer? I'm sure he really doesn't care about that. Maybe he didn't really mean this. Maybe I can just keep that out of his sight. It's only a matter of time before this kind of familiarity with Jesus takes great offense at Jesus. It's only a matter of time before we find many reasons to reject Jesus, many reasons to take offense at Jesus, especially if you start to take him seriously. And yet, what if our offenses indicate that it's not Jesus who needs to change, but us? Listen to this quote by G.K. Chesterton. I love this. Suppose we heard an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some men said he was too tall and some too short. Some objective objected to his fatness some lamented his leanness some thought him too dark some too fair one explanation would be that he might be an odd shape but there is another explanation he might be the right shape perhaps in short this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing at least the normal thing, the center. Here's what G.K. Chesterton's point is. Perhaps our offenses are not because we see so objectively, not because Jesus, again, is the one who needs to change, but because we need to correspond to his reality, to him at the center, to reorder our lives according to God's design, again, his revelation, because we have not rightly understood ourselves and our world, and that needs to change. Your assumptions, if they lead you to consistently explain around Jesus and ex- or explain him away entirely, maybe it's time to revisit your assumptions. 
Jesus may not be what you expected, but maybe it's time for your expectations to change. Which leads to our third point. Familiarity is deceptively immune to Jesus. Deceptively immune to Jesus. And it turns out all this rejection, this response, did not particularly surprise Jesus. After all, this was the pattern of many prophets in the Old Testament and would soon be the case in this same chapter with the prophet John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus quotes a well-known proverb immediately after in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Notice these concentric circles. Hometown, relatives, household. Each more restricted and personal. His point is, is that the closer you are to the truth, sometimes the, least, the less likely you are to actually see the truth. Sometimes those who have every opportunity to believe do not because they don't think they need to. Being close to Jesus is not a guarantee that you get Jesus at all. But still, even as Jesus is not necessarily surprised, if we can use that word, by the rejection, he is amazed by it. Did you see that? He marvels. It's Jesus' turn to be stunned. In fact, verse 5 tells us something, well, something well confusing, to say the least. It says that Jesus could do no mighty work there, no miracle there. He could only heal a few sick people. What does it mean that Jesus couldn't do the mighty miracles he did elsewhere. I mean, isn't he supposed to be God in human flesh? Certainly. And yet, everything Jesus does is in obedience to his Father. It corresponds with his mission. And his miracles are about, simply, are about far more than simply winning over an audience. As Timothy Keller puts it, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. In other words, Jesus is not a performer looking for applause, desperate for people to like him and to take him seriously. Jesus does not show off in the face of stubborn unbelief. Rather, it is in the context of genuine, humble faith that the miraculous is experienced. Friends, let me give you one of the most practical implications of this. If we no longer see God moving... If we no longer see him doing the supernatural thing of saving and transforming lives by the power of the gospel, if people are not growing in their adoration of Jesus in a discernible spirit of repentance or in a desire to see people come to faith in Christ, if people are not growing in their love for others, their devotion to the word of God, their hunger for holiness, if you are not growing in these ways, it could be that unbelief has begun to take root in your heart. It could be that you have been, probably the best word is inoculated to the gospel. What do I mean? So in, uh, in right now, I mean, we see news articles shared about the progress on a vaccine, right? Progress on a vaccine for coronavirus. 
I mean, how many of us are praying for a safe, effective one? How does a vaccine work? I'm not a scientist, so if you are one, please come correct me if I'm wrong in this, but at least as I understand it, a vaccine works as a doctor injects your body with a small dose of an ineffective or dead strain of a virus, which then makes you immune to the real thing. Injects you with a dead or ineffective strain of the virus, so it makes you immune to the real thing. I fear familiarity can sometimes inoculate us to the gospel. Some of us have in mind a version of the gospel. We operate according to a certain understanding of Christianity, but then it turns out not to be the real thing, only a weakened and dead form of it, which inoculates us to the real thing. In fact, I have found that many who once rejected Christianity weren't rejecting Christianity as it is, but a false, powerless version of it. A version I would reject too. In fact, let me tell, let me ask those of you who have, uh, who feel like you've been there, uh, tried that when it comes to this, uh, when it comes to religion, uh, what if the gospel you rejected isn't really the gospel at all? Stick around. Dive deep into God's word with us. Learn what it actually is before making up your mind. But let me say to those who consider ourselves Christians, sometimes the greatest obstacle to faith is not God's inaction in our lives, but our familiarity. We have found a version of the gospel that's convenient and comfortable and become immune to the real thing. What's the solution, friends? To get to know the real Jesus. Not the well-worn, comfortable version that leaves your life pretty much as it is, but the real Jesus who insists on being treated as Savior and Lord. You know, that kind of life will hardly be comfortable or predictable. You might, and you're probably likely even, to experience rejection just like Jesus. It's the context by which the gospel goes forward, actually, is in the context of rejection. But the, it is the only life, this kind of life, is the only one that brings true satisfaction, makes us truly human. It is the only kind of life which orbits around the right thing by which everything else comes to make sense. The kind of life that sees God show off in mighty ways through my very ordinary life. And friends, let me remind you, this isn't the first time that Jesus experienced this rejection, even as he marvels at it. In fact, it Jesus knows us so well, he knows our own rejection so well, that this is, this is why he endures the cross. The greatest rejection, where it gets even more intense and severe, where that rejection turns to anger, and we stand cursing with the crowds, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knows our rejection for what it is, knows that we are not looking to interrupt our lives, and so he interrupts them. He intervenes. Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf to break the will of our rejection. That is the good news of the gospel, friends. You want to you orbit your life around it, meditate long and hard upon the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Spend your life worshiping this God daily, whether you feel like it or not. 
In fact, these three core values, let me tell you how this transforms the life of a disciple over time. You want to grow in your amazement over Jesus. You want to not just be familiar. You don't want to become decreasingly uh, um, impressed with Jesus. You don't want to become increasingly offended by Jesus. Prioritize these three things. Be in regular worship. Be among a community of faith that can remind you of truth when it's hard to believe it. And daily worship where you're slowing down in the word of God. When you feel like it's dry, spend more time in the word. More desperation. Talk to the Lord about it. Slow down. Ask more questions. Don't just make it a routine. Say, God, why now are you showing this to me? Spend time in real, desperate prayer. Second, spend time in community. Your life has become dry. You feel like you don't, you don't know if you're holding to an alternative gospel. You're being inoculated to the, rest, to the, to the, to the right gospel. Spend time among God's people, getting to know them, studying God's word together, being transparent, opening your heart up to sometimes heart surgery in front of them. And three, be on mission with them. Sometimes the way that we come to love the gospel, and sometimes the reason that we become dead into the gospel, has to do with mission. We've made the gospel something to be consumed, or worship something to be consumed, and we're no longer active in the mission. We're no longer serving one another. We're no longer looking for opportunities to be able to speak of Jesus, demonstrate the love of Jesus. We're no longer spending our lives with non-believers. Instead, we've somehow isolated ourselves enough to bunker down until glory. If your life has become dry, if you're no longer seeing the signs of the gospel's transformative power, if you wonder even now that you have become inoculated of the gospel, give yourself to these things. And grow in your wonder of him. Grow in your wonder of him over and over, not by, making the glass, not by pushing the gospel off center stage, but putting it more in the center, in the spotlight. Friends, we know, I know that we need Jesus' help in this. In fact, there's no way we will change if the same power that once woke us from death does not help us now walk in life. And so let's pray. Lord, we come to you as those who many of us are familiar. Some of us are not. Some of us are not even sure about you. Many of us are familiar. Some, many of us are um, dry. We've been deadened and dulled. We have already, in many ways, assumed you to be a certain way, and we've been explaining around Jesus for too long. Would you, by, our, by your word, interrupt us, convict us, even me? I will not change my opinions unless you disagree with me. Would you disagree agree, agree with us for our good? And by your Spirit's power, would we take you seriously? That we might be a church in which Jesus really is the leader. And the gospel really is clear. And so clear we can sniff out all alternatives. But all of these things are really for the center of our universe, Jesus Christ. The one who is glorious and deserves to be high and lifted up. The one we want to know more. As Paul prayed, that we would know the love that surpasses knowledge. He prayed also that we might know the power that's within us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We want to know him. Would you help us for the same? And would we help one another? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.